Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And we really have a problem with something that is endless. You know, we, we want, we have so much on our plate and so many things going on that we want closure. We want the report done. We want the kids picked up. We want, you know, the house cleaned, whatever it is, we want it done because that way we can take it off our plate and we'll, we feel like we'll have one less thing that we have to contend with. And I think that's why something like meditation is difficult for people because they feel like, well, when do I get done with this? When am I good at this? And it's this, when you say, well, it's just something you do forever. That's a very difficult concept and it's an uncomfortable concept for people until you begin to see the benefits of it. When you begin to see the benefits of it and how it impacts your life and your self-power, then that starts to dissolve and you start to go, yeah, I get this. I want to participate in this forever because I want this ability to continue to expand. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Tom, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across your story actually by way of your publicist who uh, sent me a copy of your book, um, Fully Engaged. And as I was saying, you know, just before we hit record here, part of my interest in this whole idea of full engagement is the fact that I am myself, I'm writing a book on creative habits and deep in the midst of a chapter on flow and how we actually get fully engaged um, with our creative work and, and how it impacts our performance. But before we get there, um, I want to start with a, a question that I, I think has always been very interesting to start with. And that is, what did you want to be when you grew up when you were a kid? And how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Uh, I think what I wanted to be, at least when I was old enough to figure that to actually have something that I wanted to be, was probably uh, a professional musician. Mm-hmm. And I did experience that, but the um, the way that that impacted where I am today is that uh, I was absolutely terrible at practicing anything. I had no discipline when I was younger. And I was aware of this, the observer part of my personality was very aware that I had this um, this creative side of me that was always in search mode for something else to go after. And I would, be get, would get very intense about it and want to take off after it and get very excited. But I would um, burn up that initial enthusiasm uh, fairly quickly. And then after that happened, then I would find myself in this very familiar struggle to keep myself going. And that would be because I was very attached to the goal and you know, whatever it was that I was trying to accomplish. And for example, with piano, when I started on the piano, I could hear all this stuff in my head that I wanted to be able to play. And obviously when I sat down at the piano, I couldn't do it. And I didn't really have any, um, perspective on how long it was going to take me to do that. The whole thing just seemed insurmountable. And so I ended up not uh, continuing after about nine months. I quit playing 
I came back to it later. Uh, interestingly, when I was a probably about a senior in high school, I was really aware that I had this behavior that I repeated over and over again that I just described, and I knew that I had to change it, otherwise I was never going to accomplish anything I wanted, and I was never going to have any self-power. So that decision that I had to change it, my awareness of it was very clear to me, but I had no idea how I was going to do that. Mm -hmm. And when I was in my first year at the University of Delaware, somebody, uh, a close friend of mine was taking a Religions of the World course, and he handed me his textbook, and I began reading on all the Eastern thought, which brought in this um, Zen mind and present moment functioning and all this sort of thing. And I, for some reason, it was like somebody flipped a switch. And at the very same time, I had started back into the piano with a, um, a very high-level jazz improvisational teacher. And so the, the two of those um, coordinated so that I was able to begin to develop this present moment functioning. And I became pretty proficient in playing and, and actually did play professionally for, for quite a few years. Mm. So, you know, that ability to, to change behavior, especially when it comes to some sort of a creative habit or some, you know, incredibly ambitious endeavor where, you know, when you're looking at it from the start, the obstacle seems insurmountable. You managed to do that. I'm curious, what enables that kind of behavior change for the person who seems to burn out, um, you know, especially the one that starts out with so much enthusiasm? Because, you know, I've seen this with a lot of people who start creative projects, even blogs, for example. I think the, the standard sort of rate for any online project is most people quit after about 90 days because of exactly what you're talking about. Well, I think that the number one cause is that we are very, we are taught um, bottom line mentality. So we are very attached to the to the goal itself, as opposed to the process of achieving the goal. And that's really it in a nutshell. I mean, we spend 99% of our time achieving our goals, and at a very short period of time, actually having the goal. I mean, actually realizing the goal. And so we become so attached to this moment that we're going to achieve this goal. That what that does is it immediately puts us at war with the process of achieving it. it. The process becomes this nuisance that we have to go through so that we can get to this place out here where we can actually hold the goal in our hand and say, now I have it. And I really think that that's where we um, we fall down. And once we begin, you know, if you look at it like a race, one of the things that we have to remember is that the reason any of our goals are satisfying is because of the process that we went through to achieve them. Mm -hmm. If I draw a line in the uh, with a piece of chalk on the, the sidewalk and say, there's the finish line, step over it. It means absolutely nothing. But when you have to prepare for a marathon and then you have to run the marathon, when you step over that same chalk line at the end, the reason it holds so much value to you is what went into actually getting to that point. And I think when we can begin to... Um, uh, you know, to become engrossed in that and to um, and to take that on as um, to envelop it and to make it uh, and to understand that this is where the joy is. This is the reason this is satisfying. It's because it's a personal expansion that is happening to us in every moment. It's one that we're experiencing right now in this moment. And that means that we're we're missing that because our mind and our attention is not on what we're doing right now. It's on this thing in the future. And I, I think it's a, it's really a paradigm shift that we need to learn. Mm -hmm. 
You know, it's interesting for you to say that because, you know, I, as I mentioned, I'm in this book about creative habits. And one of the things that I, I'm learning is that the, the thing that I enjoy most is actually the process. Like, I, as I was looking back at it, I thought, you know, yeah, getting to hold the book in my hand when it was finished was very cool, but I would give anything to be right back in the middle of it. That was where I found the most joy. But, you know, the thing that I, I, I think comes up in my mind is, okay, that's easy for people like you and I to say who have managed to do this and, and hold this finished book in our hand. And for the person who hasn't, they, in their mind, you know, it, it's really easy to understand what you're saying intellectually, but I think to actually change their behavior based on understanding this, I think, poses a challenge. And I'm curious what you have to say about that. Well, I, I would say before you can do anything that we're talking about here, the very first thing you have to do is some thought awareness training. And the reason I say that is because what you're describing there is that people cannot separate themselves from the emotional content of what they're experiencing. I mean, it's their emotions that make them feel like this is difficult, it's unpleasant, I don't want to be here, I want to be over there. And they're in their thoughts, they're actually participating in their thoughts as opposed to being objective and observing their thoughts. And if you can't do that, if you can't experience that um, that separation, because that's really where the, the, the power is, and that's really where the release comes from and where it begins to be an, a, a real knowable experience. So I always tell people that the very pl- first thing you have to do is is practice thought awareness training, and you can call it meditation if you want. It, it really needs to be something like a following your breath series or p- repeating a, a short phrase, but it's in that practice that two things happen. One is you become more aware that you are not your thoughts, that you are the one that experiences your thoughts, and some of the thoughts that you experience, you intend. In other words, you have a, um, you're planning a goal, and you've got to write the stuff out, or you're solving a problem, and you're you're working that out. Those are thoughts that your mind is is serving you. It's working as a, a problem solving machine, but. Because the mind likes to solve problems and it doesn't like to be idle, it will go into search mode if you don't give it a problem. And that means it's generally someplace other than where you are now. And most people, we, you know, we spend our lives just going along with it wherever it's going and experiencing all the emotions of, that are related to the, the thoughts that it's firing off. And then we, we are, you know, people say, well, you know, how do I become more present moment? And I, my response is, well, you have to know when you're not being present moment. And most people don't know that. They're just not being present moment. It's like, how do I become more patient? Well, you can't, you can't <laughs> switch back to being patient if you don't know you're being impatient. You're just experiencing impatience. And that's the, the conundrum. And um, it's the paradox here of as you begin to become more aware that your mind is here, but you yourself is here and you need to pull the mind back into what you want. That's when you get this the privilege of choice and being able to use your mind and say, this is what I want you to do, because this is where I have decided we're going to go. And that comes from this process of watching your, um, you know, sitting quietly. And uh, it's so simple. The mechanics are so simple. I mean, sitting quietly and watching your your body breathe and what will happen very quickly into that is that your mind just takes off because it says this is boring I don't want to be here there's got to be a problem I can chew on Mm -hmm. so it just takes off and you go with it and then what happens is when you're intentionally trying to watch your breath you will wake up and realize that you're someplace other than watching yourself breathe or saying your your phrase and it's in that it's in that microsecond that you you expand your awareness your self awareness expands and when that happens 
what you gain from that is you gain this increase in awareness of what your mind is doing and that you are not your mind. And you also gain the willpower to pull the mind back because you have to pull it back to uh, whatever the task is, saying your phrase or watching your breath. And it's kind of it's amusing to me when people do this and they say, um, well, first of all, there is no such thing as a bad thought awareness training session or meditation session, whatever you want to call it. There's no such thing as that. People say, well, I'm not very good at it. And I say, why do you say that? And they say, well, because I'm always chasing my mind. And my response is, well, you can't be chasing your mind if you're not noticing that your mind is running off. And that is the goal. So if you're chasing your mind a lot, it means that you're noticing your mind a lot, which is great. You're getting a lot of reps in, just like you're at the gym. Mm. So don't look at it as a, a failure. Look at it as um, you know, as an indication that your awareness is growing. And I think that it's very important for people to see that. But as that happens, it's such it's such a an amazing, magical thing because it's so mechanics of it are so simple and it's so subtle. But what begins to happen is you begin to be outside of your thinking process and you begin to direct it instead of just being a puppet of it. And it's a that's when you really start to gain self-power and you begin to do the things here that we're talking about where people say, well, I haven't experienced that. Well, that's because you're being run by your mind instead of the other way around and you're not even aware of it. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I want to ask you a question. Um, I, you know, this is out of, of morbid curiosity because I, I've had you know quite a few meditation teachers. We've even had a former Buddhist monk here um, as a guest. One of the things that I've heard over and over is that it's not necessarily the length of your meditation sessions, but it's the frequency, the repetition that actually allows you to get the benefit from it. So you don't have to you know go to a monastery in India or you know sit in an ashram for ten weeks. You can literally you know be- derive the benefits of this from like two minutes a day. Oh, I totally agree with that. In fact, when I was, um, you know, uh, it's because it's the way that the um, the, not only the mind works, but it's also how you're creating a habit of thought, a a habit of functioning and habits are created through repetition and the repetitions don't have to be for a long period of time. I remember when I was studying jazz piano, the my instructor said, look, I would rather you practice 10 minutes a day every day than practice three hours on Sunday afternoon. Because it's the time period, there are things that are happening in between the actual practice sessions that you're not aware of. And, you know, this is, um, this is part of mastery. You know, when we are, when we are working at mastering something, for example, um, I just started, I play several instruments and I've always wanted to play drums. So I just started on the drums and the, um, when I first started, you know, you're doing these independent rhythms. And so because I'm right-handed, the rhythms are very easy for me to do with the right hand, but not so easy to do with the left hand. So I start tapping out these rhythms with the right hand, and then I have to do it with the left hand. Well, when I first start to do this with the left hand, it just it's just not there. I mean, it just says, I don't know what you're talking about, and it doesn't want to follow my instructions. But what's interesting is because I'm aware of how the mind works and, and how the synapses are formed and all these things, I just ignore that, and I just continue to intend for my left hand to do what I want it to do. And within two days, it's starting to obey and it's starting to do it. But it takes time. It takes um, the training and execution and then rest, execution, rest, execution, rest. And when, when people can realize this and they can let go of this thing of I have to be here in order to be happy, in order to be successful. And I think that um, what happens, particularly with uh, because of our culture, everything is based on the climax 
Meaning, if you watch television commercials, they always show the people own the $50,000 car. They're, they're in the, the big house. They have the big job. Everything, they're already there. They're already at the end of the whatever their endeavor is. There's never uh, any emphasis on the process of getting there, which is where the joy is. And then we carry this in everything we do. It's not how much you study. It's what grade you got on the test. That's what matters. And they wonder why people cheat. Well, that's because you know we're taught <laughs> this stuff from the time we're kids, that this is what matters is getting the the end result and that gets carried into a, um, a meditative practice we feel like I should be at this level now and it's amusing to me uh, and it's also we resist it because when you meditate a meditation practice is like uh, it's, it's like exercising you know you never get to a point in physical exercise whether it's yoga or some sort of um, interval training or something like that you never get to a point where you go well I'm done I don't need to do this for the rest of my life because I'm, I've mastered I've mastered exercise it doesn't work that way it's part of healthy living and maintaining a mindset and a physical body and medita a meditative practice is the same way and we really have a problem with something that is endless you know we we want we have so much on our plate and so many things going on that we want closure we want the report done we want the kids picked up we want you know the house clean whatever it is we want it done because that way we can take it off our plate and we'll we feel like we'll have one less thing that we have to contend with and I think that's why something like meditation is difficult for people because they feel like, well, when do I get done with this? When am I good at this? And it's this – when you say, well, it's just something you do forever. That's a very difficult concept and it's an uncomfortable concept for people until you begin to see the benefits of it. When you begin to see the benefits of it and how it impacts your life and your self-power – then that starts to dissolve and you start to go, yeah, I get this. I want to participate in this forever because I want this ability to continue to expand. Mm. So walk me through um, sort of the trajectory of, of you know studying music in college to how you ended up doing the work that you do. Because I know it's been this very sort of ver varied career from having read the book. And I'm curious kind of, you know, what have been sort of the major inflection points that have led you to today? Well, when I was at the University of Delaware, my major was actually turf and horticulture. I was going to be like a superintendent of a golf course. And <laughs> uh, so uh, it was a roundabout way to get into what I'm doing. But because I had, I always had a love of music. I had started playing the guitar when I was four years old. We didn't have a piano. I studied seriously for several years. And then the, the, the instructor was sick and had to give it up. And then we got a piano when I was nine. I took lessons for, I don't know, maybe 10 months. And I was a terrible student. And I quit then. And but I had this tremendous love for music. I could hear it all the time. My head I had all these ideas for arrangements and compositions. So when I was at the University of Delaware, as I said, I was studying jazz piano. And I got it myself into a position where I had fulfilled all the degree requirements for the, um, the degree I was in. But what disturbed me was that they were basically telling us, and particularly in the herbicide class, is that there was this um, – a lot of evidence that the herbicides that were being used on the golf course were causing brain cancer and all sorts of stuff. And I said, you know, this might not be a good road for me. <laughs> and I just didn't know which direction to go in. And so my father suggested that I go into piano technology because I just I absolutely love the piano. And, it, you know, it seemed like a good idea. I was 19 at the time and I I started that business uh, and the business took off and it got um, – it became so successful. By the time I was 23, I had every credential offered in the country. So I was um, also the only – it was an octogenic, octogenic, 
um, career in terms of everybody in it was my father's age. And so, you know, by the time I was in my mid 20s, everybody was that it was in my area was getting out of it. And they were just handing me all of their business. So my business became extremely successful and very big. Now, the reason I mention that is because everything that you do on a piano is at least 88 times because you got 88 notes but usually it's hundreds of times and for example you know a piano action the keyboard system has about 5,000 parts and about 34 adjustments per note and every adjustment is interdependent on every other adjustment so if you turn adjustment one it's going to affect all the other adjustments so you basically have to constantly refine these adjustments as you go through what they call regulating the action and because I had become the uh, chief concert technician in the area on so, um, for so many venues I was constantly having to prepare pianos for the highest level players the best classical musicians in the world jazz musicians they were all I was meeting them all and spending time with them and talking to them about discipline and all those sort of things and but also having to prepare the instrument and these these people were pushing the instrument to its limit so everything had to be absolutely um, perfect in order for it to keep up with them and be a transparent interface. So that was part of it. But the other part was that I had gotten into uh, full-scale remanufacturing of grands, which is a very um, esoteric skill, uh, all handwork, chiseling, and again, repetition like you cannot imagine. <laughs> Just like unbelievable repetition in, uh, in very small detail work. So at the end of the day, I was working six, seven days a week, uh, 65 to 70 hours a week, and I was almost all of my time was in solitude. I, I worked by myself. And when I would come into a theater to work, everybody left and I would just be on the stage by myself for hours with the instrument and they wouldn't come back until I told them I was finished. Many times I would go in at uh, four o'clock in the morning if I had to, uh, you know, because there was stuff going on in the theater so that I could have a, a quiet place to work. And so I spent a lot of time by myself doing this incredibly repetitious work, which gave me this wonderful incubator for working with this Eastern thought. And then I had gotten into sports psychology and found that they were basically two sides of the same coin. But I had this opportunity to constantly apply this stuff and see how it made me feel, how it made me perform, what kind of a difference it make, and just constantly refine it. And that's really where all of my writing came from, and that's where, um, you know, going through that period of all, all during that time, I was learning the, you know, jazz improvisation. So I work on the piano, and then I play, and I, so I spent all this time in solitude, working with repetition and mindfulness, and it was years of this, and that was really where all of my writing came from. As I was growing up in school, I was always told to be a writer. I didn't do that uh, in school because I was so busy with musical compositions. But by the time I uh, I would write for myself, but by the time I got into my late twenties, early thirties, that was when I conceived of writing the Practicing Mind, which was my first book uh, and the one that preceded Fully Engaged. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hmm. So, you know, having been a musician, uh, you know, in high school and also, you know, having spent insane amounts of time um, trying to get an understanding of what it is that allows mastery of, of any craft. Um, I'm curious, you know, what are the lessons about mastery that came from all that time spent in solitude and, and also, you know, doing something as esoteric as restoring grand pianos that clearly, in my mind, involves a lot of craftsmanship? It does. And I, I think, you know, learning to be... Um Learning to use your goal as a rudder, you know, which is one of the comments that I've made over and over again. You know, you need a you, you need a goal because the goal serves as motivation, but it also serves as steerage. You need to know where to um, direct your energy. So I, you know, I also one of the things I do is I have a pilot's license, but I also sail. And if you look at sailing, uh, you know, the wind is the energy. But if you don't have a rudder on the on the sailboat, then the thing just gets blown. The energy is just dissipated. The boat just go, you know, gets blown sideways and all around the the lake or wherever the bay or wherever it is you're sailing, and you end up not going anywhere. And so it's important that you have a goal. But again, the problem is is this thing of feeling like um, when I reach this goal, that's when I'm going to um, experience happiness. In fact, I, I've always thought that sailing was a really great. A metaphor for mindfulness because you know 
there's a saying in sailing that when you leave the marina, you've reached your destination. Um, the reason you pick a destination to, um, in sailing is so you have some place to sail to, so you can experience the process of sailing the boat. So you know, so you leave the um, the marina and you go, hey, let's sail down there, which you know, eight miles away. Okay, now you've got some place to direct the boat, but it's it's the experience of actually managing the sails and the wind and the tide and you know, watching out you don't run aground, and if you do, how you're going to get the boat. It's all the creativity that goes into it. It's and the, the experience of all of that that makes it joyful. And so I really learned, you know, by myself, I could, I really got, because I wasn't distracted with conversation, I was able to, for example, if I had to um, build a bridge for a piano, you know, you've got hundreds of little pins that have to be drilled in there, hundreds of uh, hand chiseling work that has, to, that has to be done. And you could sit there it wasn't that I just you just had to do that on a piano, but I had pian I had like three years of work booked. So you could you'd be sitting there chiseling the bridge on this piano that you knew was going to take you maybe two weeks, but you had five pianos stacked against the wall that were waiting for you to do them. And so you had to um, find joy in this whole experience of remanufacturing pianos in this moment, and that was became so apparent to me with such clarity that. Um, I really started to work at it. And when I did, I began to experience that this joy of I'm right where I am. I didn't see everything that had to be done. All I saw was what was in front of me. And when you do that, your your thinking slows down, your thoughts thin out, and you have access to all of your consciousness, as opposed to a mind that's running all around and going, yeah, but what about, uh, you know, that piano over there, I know that's got a particular problem I haven't dealt with before. What am I going to do when I get to that? And, you know, I had this problem last week. I'm not sure it's absolutely fixed. I'll have to wait and see if the customer calls me back. See, the mind isn't doing all that. It's only notching this bridge right now by hand. And when you do that, it's really um, a complete release from all the stress and from this feeling of, um, attachment uh, and incompleteness of I got to be over there. I have to have this. No, this is this is there's just me, this tool, and this bridge. That's all there is. And I had to experience that for myself. But once I did, and I saw how freeing that was, and what a joy it was to just be completely absorbed in the moment of what I was doing, in this process of rebuilding this instrument, it began to translate into other things. You know, I started studying golf and. I would go into my basement at night and I, um, after work and I would do maybe 200 swings in front of a mirror and I would do them in slow motion and I would sit there and I would break the swing down into like 20 different parts. Just I'd do 10 swings in slow motion just looking at my feet and focusing on that and then just focusing on my knees and then just focusing on my hips. And then I would do – I became so absorbed in the, the joy of just being absorbed in the process of learning a golf swing that I would, became very creative. I would put on a set of headsets in the dark and put a film score on that was very pastoral and I would slow, I would slowly swing in total darkness to feel the balance of my body. Now, how did this translate out? Well, when I began getting with uh, PGA Pro instructors, I, I, I was uh, um, a total anomaly with them. I mean, they, they would tell me, I've never seen anybody that has progressed as fast as you. As you. I've never seen anybody with a golf swing that has such a fluid motion. Well, that was all because of all this stuff I was doing. And, you know, to me, it was just this joy of when I would have a stressful day – 
to be able to go down and shut everything off. The kids were in bed. I was done talking to my wife and, you know, like, and now I'm just completely immersed in just this process. I don't be, I don't have to be anywhere else. I think once people begin to see that, and I have found this in, in coaching when I, as I work with people, I've worked with people that were um, like, for example, one guy was a surgeon and, you know, he was his days. He was just in surgery, running to do paperwork, in surgery, running to do paperwork. And after we worked together for a couple of weeks, it, it became this total joy. He found that he was in this complete mindfulness. Why he and he was getting comments from his uh, the people in the operating room saying something's changed in you. And he was seeing himself completely immersed in this process of doing surgery, completely immersed in this process of doing paperwork. He said, you know, his, he was coming out at the end of the day um, refreshed and um, with a sense of contentment. It was a complete turnaround for his experience of life. And that's really what I try to teach people is you can do this. This can be the natural way that you think. We just haven't been taught to do this in our culture. Mm-hmm. The, the question that that raises, obviously, I think is really, you know, at the heart of what this, this book is about is how do we do that on a daily basis? Like, you know, I guess let's look at it through the lens of a, a practical example, because some of that, you know, really struck a chord with me. So I'm in the midst of a book, but I know that, you know, one of the things that happens is it takes me anywhere. It takes me about an hour before I hit flow. Like I know for a fact that pretty consistently the first thousand words will be crappy. And then suddenly I'm kind of like, wow. But there's a lot of things that I have to do to make sure that happens. So I'm just I'm curious, you know, how do people bring about this sense of being fully immersed or fully engaged in whatever it is that they're doing on a consistent basis? Like, how do you make this a daily habit? Well, it takes practice for one, yeah. um, and it takes non-judgment for one. Okay. I, mean, um, I think that's the big thing is because where does judgment come from? <coughs> it comes from, excuse me, it comes from this feeling that you should be at a certain place. And one of the things that I wrote about in Fully Engaged is, in general, when we set goals, and the goal here is to be in flow, uh, to be fully engaged all the time. Well, you know, that's somebody, a family member of mine called me one day and said, you know, I tried to be present moment yesterday and it didn't work. And I said, <laughs> well, the problem with that sentence is the word yesterday. <laughs> I said, you can't, you know, you've never worked at this and you're starting out trying to be a Zen master. You know, even the Zen masters aren't don't stay completely present all day long. I said, you know, you you have to do something like you have to pick goals that are realistic um, using accurate data. Like I'm going to be mindful from nine o'clock to nine oh five to start. But what we do is, you know, as a culture, you know, we want everything's big, win big, work, you know, no pain, no gain, all this stuff that we were fed day in and day out. So we begin to feel we begin to judge where we are with this um, based on this subconscious sense of this should take this long and we should be at this place here. You know, a story I've told many, many times, I had one of the people I work with had quit a corporate job and wanted to become uh, a visual artist. And when she contacted me, she I asked her what she was struggling with on the first, the first session. And she said, um, well, I've been at this for six months and I'm not as good as I should be. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's an honest perspective. How good should you be? And there was silence. And she said, well, you know, I, I guess I don't really know. And I said, well, if you don't know how good you should be, how do you know you're not better than you should be for the average person that's been doing this for six months? And she said, well, I never thought of it like that. I guess I don't know that either. And I said, well, if you can do what you do now, 
um, if you could do that six months ago, would you have thought you were good? And she said, oh, absolutely. And I said, so it's not that you're not moving forward and getting better. It's that your perception of how good you can be is expanding as you move down the road. I mean, this happens in any art form and in anything. You know, when we start out, you you really that you can't have an idea of what your your potential is when you start out. Uh, you learn that as you go, and things you can't even imagine begin to present themselves to you. So I think that the um, to me, I tell people, look, if you want to be fully engaged all the time, and you start out there, you set yourself up for failure because what you've immediately done is you've set this goal of when I I'm here, I'm not fully engaged. I'm almost never fully engaged. But when I can be fully engaged all the time, and that which is what I want, then I'm going to be happy. Well, you've already created this gap between where you are and where you need to. Be. Be, and it's been created with the spirit of the only reason I'm doing this practice is so I can get to this point over here. The practice <laughs> is this nuisance I have to do. So now it's you're not enjoying the process, and and actually, you know, the present moment is all there really is. The rest of it doesn't exist. The, the future and the past doesn't. You know, it's only right here. So you give you what you've basically done is betrayed yourself, and you forfeited the opportunity to experience becoming fully engaged and and the other paradox is when you're fully engaged you don't know that you're fully engaged because you're completely absorbed in what you're doing if you go hey i'm fully engaged no you're not now you're thinking about how you were fully engaged and so that's the you know the, the paradox it's really kind of a game and but as i said as you practice thought awareness, what will happen is as you start to become very clingy to some point other than where you are, because you will not be that thought, you will just notice that pull. You will feel the pull. You will notice that you're separate from it, and you won't judge that you have started, that you've you've fallen off the wagon. You won't judge it. You go, oh, look at this. I'm going over there. Come on back here. It's like a you know a parent with a toddler in the toy store, and they're just running you know around because they're just seeing all this stuff that they're excited about, and they just keep pulling them back online. No, no, no. You know, we're back here. We're walking through the aisle. This is the way I want you to go. I mean, that's that's the mind. The mind just wants to explore and go problem solve and look for things that it finds it finds interesting, and as you become better at more um. Farther along in your thought awareness, you'll you'll basically be watching this, and you will be in control. You have the willpower to pull it back. But it's a mistake to enter something like this, like with this idea of, and I even say that you know, like the practicing mind. The pra what is practice? Practice is the the repetition of an of a process with the intention of achieving a specific goal, and without judgment. Got, it's a series of refinement, constant refinement. Everything that we do in life comes from repetition and refinement, whether it's learning to walk, learning to talk. You know, when we first started the walking, it's like you're up, you're down, you're up, you're down. But the balance starts to happen. The brain starts to figure it out. It's this, this, um, this repetition of this action with an intention. I want to walk from here to there. And, and the mind figures it out, and you get better at it, better at it. And now, as an adult, you walk across the room, and you don't even think about it. Well, it's the same thing. You don't judge. You know, this judgment thing to me is the enemy. It's like if you take a basketball player who's shooting foul shots and he shoots the first shot and the you know you watch the ball and you know the ball's short, it's left, it's long, it doesn't go through the hoop. Now, if he if he looks at that and says and and intuitively says this is what I need to do on the next shot, that's the most efficient um, way to perform and it's going to be the most productive and his experience of shooting the foul shots will be the most content contentful but 
if he, he slams the ball down and goes, I cannot believe I was left on that. I practice this all day long. And, rah, 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 and this thing starts rolling around in his head. And what's happening? His experience of the moment has deteriorated and so has his performance. So that's why I'm saying, you know, we, we have to really um, guard against this thing of this is what I want to do. And you need to say, saying I want to be fully engaged as much as I can. That's your that's your target. That's you know like the archer. You got to have something to shoot at. You know that's your target. But when you begin to judge your progress, you know based on how many arrows that hit the target, then that doesn't improve your performance. It only makes your experience of getting better at it uh, unpleasant. So you know, you've alluded to performance, uh, you know, multiple times. So I can't help but ask you, you know, what what is the impact on performance across you know a variety of fields of this whole notion of being fully engaged? I mean, I have my ideas of it. Like the moment you mentioned fully engaged in performance, I think Steph Curry raining down three pointers. Um, so I'm just curious, kind of what you've seen in the lives and work of people in terms of the impact that this has on performance over the long haul. Well, virtually all of the studies in sports psychology, you know. Um, focus on not judgment and being in the present moment, letting go, you know, executing and letting go. Um, and they also focus on the fact that you cannot, you, you cannot learn and perform at the same time. So you have to make a decision. I, you know, I've worked with young golfers and, um, you know, I was out on the course with this very talented young man. Uh, and uh, I said, now I want you to make a decision today. I said, now you can break it up from one hole to the next. I said, but when you stand up on the tee, I want you to make a decision. Am I learning on this hole or am I performing on this hole? Can't do both. So if you're learning, that's when you begin to look at things like I'm going to try this. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to make these. I'm going to try experiment with these decisions. If you're performing, then you have to approach it differently. And I think that um, you know, there's a story in The Practicing Mind that I read. I've, I've shot target archery before. And uh, so I was very interested in reading up on this years ago, and there was a um, an Olympic coach. I, I'm pretty sure it was in the 1970s, and back then the the Americans, all this stuff was new. Nobody, not a lot of people were into sports psychology. It really was it was actually becoming. It was in a state of becoming at that time, and what had happened was this American coach said that the Asians, you just couldn't compete against them, and the reason was because. The Americans were very attached to getting bullseyes. The only reason they, they put the arrow in the bow and drew the bow was to, and let it go was to see if they got a bullseye. The Asians were completely absorbed in the process of drawing the bow, and the target just got in the way. And that was because all of their focus was on this process of drawing the bow, experiencing it, breathing correctly, all these things. They were completely detached from the goal, which was obviously to get the, the arrow and the bullseye. So their performance was way above everybody else that had this typical Western thing was, it doesn't matter if you don't get a bullseye. So the Americans would shoot, the arrow would be left of the bullseye, and then they would begin this self-judgment, you know, negative self-talk and all this sort of stuff, and then try harder, their performance would go down. It would set up this cycle, and they were not competitive. So I think you know, if there's one thing that we know for sure, not just from looking at Eastern thought that's been around for thousands of years, but also looking at all the empirical Western studies in peak performance is that when we are in the present moment, we are functioning at our highest level and our experience of what we're doing is also one of contentment, even bliss. 
and uh, you know our performance is very high and it's you know so this is the thing that you're starting to see this coming into corporations because if they don't start to take this on, they're going to lose their, their ability to compete, just like in sports. Because now if you go into sports, it's everywhere. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about track and field, uh, you know, football. I mean, every, everybody's talking about we got to stay in the moment. we got to stay focused. we got all this stuff. Uh, and in golf in particularly, which is where the, it's really been studied, and that's because it's a non-reactive sport. It's really very much a zen sport. I mean, the ball just – if you look at like baseball – the, the, the pitcher throws the ball at the uh, the batter, and the batter just has to react to it. Same thing, like, say, with tennis. Uh, but if you look at golf, this ball just sits there for as long as you want, and it just waits for you to swing at it. And so the mind can really interfere. All these different parts of the mind, the analytical mind, the judgmental mind, they can all get into this, this um, scenario and say, you know, boy, whatever you do, don't hit this left and all this sort of thing. And so you have to learn to discipline that and just be in this process of swinging the club and learning to let go and everything that goes into the modern sports psychology of the golf swing. So it's a really, it's an area where they've really been able to work on it and see how it impacts players. But you know, as far as performance goes, it's everything. What is the impact of technology on all of this? Um, well, I guess you could come at that from two ways. I mean, one is that technology, for me, has created problems, but it's also served to prove all this stuff. For example, um, you know, if you look at a golf swing again, you know, we can now we can put a suit on a golfer and uh, that has sensors on it and then a, a he can be filmed and these sensors are mapped out and the computer can analyze their golf swing and it can say it can analyze the perfect golf swing and then you know it can overlay this person's golf swing on a perfect golf swing it's amazing technology it can show where all the weaknesses are now the reason that that's a good thing is because it's one of the things that predicated this um, mental study, in my opinion, into sports because we had reached a point where from a physical standpoint, a physical prowess, you know, we were peaking. There was there were just we passed the point of diminishing returns. If we can if we know what a perfect golf swing is and we can teach it to someone from the time, you know, they're a child, then and if you look at like say Lydia Ko, you know, who's nineteen years old and has won all these tournaments, absolutely incredibly amazing young golfer. But now she's you know, she's struggling right now. So if if she has this this golf swing that works, she has this um ability, why can't she do it all the time? And um that was you know, that's really what I think pushed things, not her personally, but that scenario is what pushed things into that arena where they were saying, look, you know, we can um, give the person some these exercises, this nutrition, all these things that have to do with the, making the physical body operate at the optimum level. After we do that, what's next? We, you know, there's um, why do, you know, even though we do all that, we still can't get this um, this this high level of performance all the time. Where's the missing link? Well, it's the mind. The mind is what's controlling the body. So from that standpoint, the technology really created uh, or really helped us move forward and be able to study this and find out that from a Western standpoint, I mean, it was already known in the East, but from a Western standpoint, we could stand back and say, oh, you know, here, all of our decades of research have shown that this is when we function at our highest level. Where it's a problem is that we are hyper-connected 
in our culture now. We're through our smartphones, our tablets, the television, uh, everything. And what is happening is that our minds are being constantly fed stimulation. And, you know, we never have – you see these people, it's an addiction looking at their phones. You see four people sitting at a table at a restaurant. They're not talking <laughs> to each other. They're all looking at their phones. And they can't resist the technology. I love the, the – um, <laughs> you know the irony of the um, the advertisement. It's like stay connected, and they're not even connected to the person that's sitting next to them. You know, like um, <laughs> they're looking at their phone. It's it's crazy. And in fact, you know, as a sailor, I I read an article not too long ago where somebody had was uh, was a writer for a sailing magazine, and the guy was in um, he was in the Caribbean sitting on a sailboat in a marina with one of those amazing Caribbean sunsets. And he said the thing that struck him was there was a family of four on a chartered sailboat right next to him, meaning that they had they had uh, rented the boat. I guess the, the father or mother had a charter license so they could rent a bear boat and take the boat for themselves for a week. He said there, the two parents and two kids, uh, teenage kids, are sitting there on this boat next to them with this incredible sunset in back of them, and each parent was on their own iPad, and each kid was on their smartphone. He said, like, they came here for this, and they're they're completely addicted to these phones and looking at what they had missed a text, but, you know, um, so that to me is where the technology has um, it, it's we're just too connected. And because of that, the, the, mar- the marketing media has this constant connection to us. So it can constantly make us feel like, well, you can't be happy where you are because you don't have you're not driving this car and you're not on this vacation and you don't have this house. And, you know, all these things, which, again, creates dialogue, internal dialogue and level emotional responses, which ramps up internal dialogue. And so instead of having uh, instead of the technology quieting our mind, it's it's serving to agitate the mind. So there's there's really two sides to that coin of what is technology doing? You know, well, it's taught us things. It's a, uh, allowed us to learn things. But at the same time, it's also a problem. Wow. Um, well, this has been incredible. You have packed it with so much insight. Uh, you know, so much of what you have talked about has helped me, you know, process a lot of things that I've been struggling with for the last few weeks with my book. So um, <laughs> I'm very happy. I, you know, I asked a lot of questions that I did for very selfish reasons, but hopefully they've been helpful to, to people listening. So I have one last question, which is how we finish all our interviews at the unmistakable creative. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, for me, it's, it's how they view um, their their place in terms of their dharma. How they they view, you know, are they attached to um, serving other people and finding joy in that, or, or are they self-serving? And because I think that what for for me that is the thing that is so noticeable to me. We always notice people that even a simple thing like I have found that like if I'm in a checkout line. Uh, and the person, you know, that's in fact, this happened to me last week. I was in the grocery store and the, the, the girl that was doing the checkout was just kind of overwhelmed and was not having clearly not having a good day. But she had a, a name tag on and her, and her name was Amanda. And so when I got when she started doing my groceries, she was doing her best to put a smile on and go through that. And when she finished, I looked at her and I said, um, 
Thank you, Amanda. I really appreciate everything you did for me today. Well, if you could have seen the change in her demeanor and her face, just because I called her by her name and showed some appreciation, it's made such a difference in her. And I think probably started her on a different on a different foot. She smiled and I could see the tension leave her. Uh, So I think it's, you know, I watch people and I know what it feels like for me when people are aware enough that they're extending some kindness and attention. Uh, I think it's an unmistakable characteristic in people that really shows forth. Hmm. Well, like I said, this has been just uh, amazing. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Well, they can come to um, any one of my websites, Tom Sterner, Dot com. Uh, they can come to the Practicing Mind Institute.com, which is what I founded this past year. And it has, there's free stuff you can join. There's um, a lot of stuff coming up, some online course stuff, uh, mastermind things that are happening where we're, you know, I'll work with a group of people for like five weeks for a very inexpensive fee. There's all sorts of stuff that we have coming on for 2017. And basically, what we try to do is, um, is to take everybody gets to pick something in their life and then we learn they learn to apply this present moment functioning to that particular thing that they're struggling with and because the goal is to get people to function this way naturally not to have to be trying to do it when i was younger i didn't function this way i learned it over a period of time now it's the way i see everything and so it's completely transformed my life and anybody can learn that awesome and for everybody listening we will wrap the show with that next time on The Unmistakable Creative. The way I've been teaching it recently is just change the but to an and. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I want to be a writer, but I don't have any formal training. You know, I want to be an actor, but I'm really old. <laughs> I want to be a health coach, but I'm super fat. Like, no, you want to be a writer and you have no formal training. You want to be an actor and you're old. You want to be a health coach and you're super fat. That's part of of what you have to bring that's that's the magic that's your way of doing it samantha bennett joins us to talk about starting right where we are ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.